Hello again, everyone, and welcome back to the Dion Gordon Podcast. I am your host, the connoisseur of common sense, the purveyor of authenticity, the man who calls it right down the middle, Dion Tyree Gordon. Enough of the bullshit. Let's get to work. 2022-23 NFL regular season has finally reached its conclusion. 18 weeks in the books, 17 games done and over with. We are moving on to the postseason, but before we do that, I want to take this time to speak about some things going on in the NFL right now. Some of the things that happened in Week 18, we had some big, pivotal games in Week 18 that had massive playoff implications, and we'll talk about that. We had two coaches that got fired, Lovey Smith in Houston, as well as Cliff Kingsbury of the Arizona Cardinals, who was let go yesterday. We got Roquan Smith, who just got paid by the Baltimore Ravens five years, $100 million, came over in the middle, middle of the season via trade with the Chicago Bears, and Baltimore has paid him and rewarded him handsomely. However, they have a quarterback on their team, a former league MVP who has not yet been paid. We'll get to that in a little bit. But we are going to begin in the California Bay Area, home of the NFL's most dangerous team, the team that is currently on a 10-game winning streak, and they've done so with five of those games they've won of the 10-game winning streak with their third-string quarterback, Mr. Irrelevant, pick number 262, my man, Brock Purdy. The attitude era, Brock Purdy. The baddest man on the planet right now, Brock Purdy. QB1 of the San Francisco 49ers, leading his team to a 13-4 win-loss record, NFC Western Division champions, and they will be hosting those low-grade son-of-a-bitch Seattle Seahawks this Saturday, the first playoff game kicking off at 4.35 Eastern time on Fox, Niners and Seahawks. But what a season it's been for the 49ers. The midseason trade with the Carolina Panthers to acquire the services of Christian McCaffrey. The 49ers are 9-0 in games that Christian McCaffrey has started. They acquired him. They were 3-4. They had just come off a victory against McCaffrey and the Carolina Panthers. Then they make that trade in the middle of the week, bring him in. Then they line up against the Kansas City Chiefs and lose 44-23, have not lost a game since. The Niners are on a roll. The Niners are hot right now, hotter than fish grease, kicking ass and taking names. Doesn't matter who you are. Tom Brady, Tampa Bay Buccaneers, come out to the West Coast and catch this fade, 35-7. Come out to the Bay Area and get earth, wind, fire, and ice beaten out of you by a third-string quarterback and a football team that is on a terroristic run right now. It's almost too good to be true. kind of gives me a little doubt and trepidation seeing the team go on a 10-game winning streak and then try to take that into the playoffs. But they're definitely coming in with a lot of momentum right now. They're rolling on both sides of the ball, offense and defense, and Brock Purdy's been outstanding so far in five games. Here are some numbers now to illustrate just how awesome Brock Purdy has been so far for the 49ers. Brock Purdy has 13 touchdown passes. That's the most by a 49ers rookie ever of all time. More than Joe Montana, more than Steve Young, more than Colin Kaepernick, more than Jeff Garcia, more than Alex Smith, more than John Brody, more than Y.A. Tittle, more than anyone who's ever played quarterback for the 49ers in their rookie season. Brock goddamn Purdy. 13 touchdown passes. He is the third rookie quarterback in National Football League history to win his first five career starts. Brock Purdy has thrown multiple passing touchdowns in six consecutive games, joining Justin Herbert, who had a streak of seven straight in 2020 in his rookie season, as the only rookies with a streak of six-plus games in NFL history. This dude is awesome. 
This dude has been everything the 49ers have needed and then some. Trey Lance goes down in week two with a broken ankle out for the season. Jimmy Garoppolo comes in, plays a couple of games, plays pretty well, to be honest, to be fair, to be objective, to show full transparency. Jimmy Garoppolo, for the most part, played pretty good football this season. He unfortunately breaks his foot in a game, in a home game against the Miami Dolphins. To the rescue, off the bench, riding in on a white horse, comes Mr. Irrelevant Barack Purdy. And the Niners have been rolling ever since. The Niners are the most dangerous team in this league, the team that no one wants to see in the playoffs. The only team I think can beat the 49ers on the NFC side of the ledger, the Philadelphia Eagles, the number one seed Philadelphia Eagles with the presumptive MVP favorite Jalen Hurts at quarterback, although I think Mahomes is going to end up winning it. But that's the only team I see that can really beat the 49ers is Philadelphia. And if we play the Eagles, that game would be in Philadelphia. That would be a tough ask. That would be a tall mountain to climb for a rookie quarterback, Mr. Irrelevant, to go on the road in the playoffs and try to upset the number one seed. But we'll cross that bridge when we get there. Got to take care of business against Seattle first. It's going to be his first playoff game. So far, Brock Purdy has, has passed every single test. He's aced every exam, every test, every pop quiz with flying colors. It doesn't matter who he's lined up against. He's played against multiple playoff teams on this run the Seattle Seahawks, the Miami Dolphins, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, and he washed all of them. He's been exemplary, outstanding, magnificent, chef's kiss, beautiful in every game he's played. He's seen multiple looks, defensive coverages. They blitz, they don't blitz, they fall back in his own coverage. Doesn't matter what they do, different players, different schemes, different defensive coordinators, on the road, at home. He's been outstanding. He's been everything we've needed so far. He's better than Garoppolo. He's played better than Jimmy Garoppolo this season. Even though Garoppolo played well, as I said earlier, Brock Purdy has played even better. Brock Purdy has better pocket presence than Jimmy Garoppolo. He he can escape the pocket. He can extend plays with his his legs and keep shit moving. The dude's awesome so far. But it's the playoffs now. And how is he going to perform in the playoffs? That remains to be seen. Hopefully, he can continue this and still play well. The Niners are going to need that if they're going to capture that elusive six Lombardi trophy that we've been seeking since Super Bowl 29, January 26, 1995. If Brock Purdy doesn't play at a high level, the Niners are not going to win a championship, even though this team is loaded on both sides of the ball. And that's made everything so much easier for Brock Purdy to come in and play at the level he's played at. You're surrounded by a litany, by a plethora of talent, just unlimited weapons all over the field for the 49ers. You got Christian McCaffrey in the backfield. Elijah Mitchell just came back off an injury. Debo Samuel just came back off an injury. Brandon Ayuk, who went over 1,000 yards receiving this season. George Kittle. George Kittle has crushed the buildings on the NFL. His production has skyrocketed ever since Brock Purdy came in. George Kittle finished this season with 11 touchdowns. He's caught seven touchdown passes in the past four games. He was not doing that when Garoppolo was quarterback. His production went up with the insertion of Brock Purdy at quarterback for the 49ers. And that makes the Niners even more dangerous because now we can actually use George Kittle at his natural position as a tight end. We can utilize his athleticism, his speed at that position, instead of just using him as a glorified extra offensive lineman. Because that's predominantly what Kittle has been for the most part the past couple of years, an extra offensive lineman. 
And yes, he's a great run blocker, but he's also an awesome, pure tight end who can run routes and get open and catch passes and make big plays. He's also a great red zone threat. We didn't notice the past couple years because Garoppolo just either didn't see him or didn't try to get the ball to him in the red zone. But now you are seeing George Kittle being used appropriately, and it has unleashed another dimension for the 49er offense that makes us so dangerous right now. The offensive line's gotten better throughout the entire season. Defensively, you already know what time it is. It's the best defense in the NFL. The only two quarterbacks this year to really have success against the Niners defense are Patrick Mahomes, and you expect that. And then of all people, Jared Stidham in that Raiders game a couple weeks ago tore the Niners defense apart. That caught a lot of people off guard, but at the same time, we didn't have any film on Jared Stidham, so it kind of makes it easier for him to come in and play at a high level. No one's seen you play before. They don't know your tendencies. They don't know how to stop you. They don't even know what to stop. It's an open book. It's a blank canvas. And the Niners had trouble with that. But everyone else they played this season, they've shut down. The Miami Dolphins came out to the Bay Area with a high-flying, high-octane, high-powered offense. Tua Tungavaloa was, at that point in the season, an MVP candidate in his own right. And the Niners punched him in the mouth, and the Niners shut them down. And they went into a tailspin ever since that. You know how awesome the 49ers have been this season? This is my favorite stat in all the sports. Teams that play the 49ers this season are 1-15 the following game after playing the 49ers. One win and 15 losses. And guess which team was the only team to win a game after playing the 49ers? Of course it was the Kansas City Chiefs. It was, it's always Kansas City. But everyone else could not win a game after playing the 49ers. Two coaches got fired immediately after losing to the 49ers this season. Matt Rule with the Carolina Panthers earlier this year, and then Cliff Kingsbury, the latest casualty of the 49ers' path of destruction this season. San Francisco has made a complete mockery of the competition for the majority of this season. However, like I said, though, I'm still nervous and trepidate. I'm always nervous about every 49er game. I don't care who we're playing. I got respect for the opponent. I got the mindset of a coach, even though I'm not. I'm just a fan, but that's how I look at things. I give respect and acknowledgement to every single team in the NFL. It's all professionals. It's all grown-ass men that lift weights and study film the same way the 49ers do. Any given Sunday, anyone can beat you. That's why they use that phrase all the time. They even made a movie about it with the same name. Any given Sunday, anything can happen. So in this case, Saturday for the playoff game. I think the Niners are going to win. They're a 10-point favorite. The NFL put their game in the early slot. The first playoff game being played, as a matter of fact, this game will kick off Super Wild Card Weekend. And typically, the NFL will put a game in that spot if they don't believe it's going to be a good game. If they believe that game is going to be a blowout where one team is decisively better than their opposition, they usually put that game in the first window of their programming because they don't even anticipate getting a good rating for that game to begin with. So all signs point to a 49er ass-whooping of the Seattle Seahawks. They played twice this season, obviously being division rivals. The first game, unfortunately, that was a game where Trey Lance got hurt, but the Seattle Seahawks did not score an offensive touchdown in that game. The final score was 27-7. to The seven points they scored, the touchdown they scored, was off a blocked field goal attempt, and they ran back for a touchdown. The second game we played, it was 21-13. And Seattle did not score until late in that contest. The Niners were in complete control the entire game. So they've only scored 20 points against us, and six of those were off a blocked field goal attempt. I feel decent about the game, but at the same time, always a little bit nervous. But it should be a win for the 49ers. More on that later in the week. I'll do a full playoff preview on both conferences, AFC and NFC. I'll get to that 
later on this week. Let's talk about some of the more noteworthy games and occurrences that took place in Week 18. Let's start with Sunday Night Football, the last game of Week 18. It was a win-and-you're-in proposition for the Green Bay Packers. All they had to do was beat their division rival, the Detroit Lions, and they would have been the seventh team in the playoffs. It would be a Niners-Packers matchup in the playoffs for the second year in a row and for the third time in the past four seasons. Unfortunately for the Packers and the rest of the Cheeseheads out there, they weren't able to take care of business and beat the Detroit Lions on Sunday night. It was a 20-16 victory for the Lions. A combination of mental lapses, poor judgment, brain-dead football, poor decision-making, turnovers, and the ineptitude of Aaron Rodgers was a perfect storm of, of events to cost the Green Bay Packers the game and their season. It also doesn't help when you get off to a 4-8 and eight start and you're trying to scramble at the end of the season to try to go into desperation, miracle run to make the playoffs. And they were in prime position to do that earlier in the day. The Seahawks beat the Rams to keep themselves alive, but at the same time, it eliminated the Detroit Lions. But Detroit came in undeterred, motivated, focused, and hungry. I fuck with the Detroit Lions. I like that team a lot. That team, as Jamal Williams said in the postgame, that team got some dog in them. And I appreciate that team. I respect the Detroit Lions. That team is on their way. They're not there yet, obviously. They didn't make the playoffs this year. They won nine games, though, after getting off to a one-and-six start. I like what Dan Campbell was doing. I like Jared Goff. We need to talk more about the resurgence of Jared Goff and how people left him for dead and called him a shitty quarterback and he wasn't good. And Some people called him a bust because he's a former number one pick in 2016, traded to Detroit in that Matt Stafford deal. The Rams win the Super Bowl last season. So everyone just says, well, obviously the problem was Jared Goff. He was the guy keeping us from winning a Super Bowl. Well, that may or may not have been true, but I'll, I'll say this right now. The outlook in Detroit is a lot more promising than it is with the Los Angeles Rams. Yeah, you won your Super Bowl last season with your all-star team that you assembled. You were supposed to win the Super Bowl last season. But right now, because you mortgaged the future for that Super Bowl and traded away a bunch of draft picks to get Matt Stafford and Jalen Ramsey and everyone else you acquired over the years, you have no future. The cupboard is bare. You have nothing. You have an old, aging, depleted football team. And your coach may or may not come back next season. The status of Matt Stafford's health is in doubt and in tremendous jeopardy. You don't know what you got going forward. I know what they got going forward in Detroit. That's a good football team. They've drafted well in the past couple of years. Aiden Hutchinson is another dog. Aiden Hutchinson, first round draft pick, number two overall out of the University of Michigan. That dude is a fucking awesome football player. Just dominating on a weekly basis. He makes a lot of plays. He was wreaking havoc all game long this past Sunday night versus the Packers. They had no answer for him. They could not block Aiden Hutchinson. He reminded me of another 97 that's adept at rushing opposing quarterbacks. That, of course, would be my, my guy, the uh, defensive player of the year, or at least he should be anyway, Nick Bosa. Aiden Hutchinson's awesome. Panay Sewell, another great draft pick. Jamison Williams, even though he was hurt most of the season, coming off a torn ACL, he suffered in last year's. National championship game against the Georgia Bulldogs when he was playing for the Alabama Crimson Tide. But you saw glimpses, you saw flashes, you, you saw moments of excellence from Jamison Williams in the limited time he was able to play football this season. He can make a lot of plays. He was, he was evaluated as the number one receiver in last year's draft before he got injured. So the sky is the limit with him. His ceiling is very high, and that's a great draft pick and a great addition to what they already got in Detroit. Amon Ross, St. Brown, another great player. They got a lot to like and a lot to be excited about in Detroit. Green Bay, 
Not so much. Your future is cloudy at best. You don't know if Aaron Rodgers is going to come back. He's probably going to hold the organization hostage again throughout the entire offseason. You already you paid him this past offseason. You gave him a $50 million per year contract, four years, $200 million deal. So you're kind of stuck with him. Can you trade him? It's going to be very difficult to do that. You gotta, you're going to have to absorb and eat the majority of that contract or try to find a team that's willing to absorb that contract if you wish to move on from Aaron Rodgers, which I would have done at the conclusion of last year's season when they lost to the 49ers. I would have moved on right after that. I would have cut bait with Aaron Rodgers right after that. You already drafted Jordan Love. He's still on his rookie deal. He's a lot cheaper than Aaron Rodgers is. A lot less drama, a lot less headache. This season, we saw a noticeable decline and drop in production from Aaron Rodgers. He did not have a 300-yard passing game this season. That's hard to believe. That's hard to fathom. With Aaron Rodgers, first ballot NFL Hall of Famer Aaron Rodgers, one of the top five best quarterbacks I've ever seen play football, a living legend, a guy who's put up ridiculous numbers his entire career, could not throw for 300 yards in 17 games played this season. Rodgers this year threw for less than 4,000 yards. He threw for 3,695 yards, 26 touchdown passes, 12 interceptions. Last season, his touchdown to interception ratio was 37 to 4. In 2020, it was 48 to 5. In 2019, 26 to 4. 2018, 25 to 2. In all those seasons, he had over 4,000 yards. The previous four seasons when Aaron Rodgers was healthy, over 4,000 yards and the best touchdown to interception ratio in the NFL this season, 26 to 12 and less than 4,000 yards passing. Production like that happens when, number one, you lose your best receiver last offseason. Devontae Adams goes to the Las Vegas Raiders, due in large part to the uncertainty surrounding Aaron Rodgers and was he going to come back to the team last season or what he was going to do with last year's offseason. A lot of doubt, a lot of uncertainty. So Devontae Adams said, fuck it, I'll go to Las Vegas, even though Green Bay offered him a better contract. I mean, Las Vegas on paper, at least at that time, seemed like a better proposition because you didn't know what was going on with Rodgers. You know what was going on, at least at that time, with the quarterback situation with the Raiders. Derek Carr, Devontae Adams, his good, close friend, former college football teammate at Fresno State. So it seemed like a great idea. Go over there. And that's what he did. And now the Packers had to come into this season with a flock of young-ass receivers, largely unproven lack of experience, no rapport, no chemistry with Aaron Rodgers. And to Aaron Rodgers' fault, he did not make any kind of attempt to develop that chemistry during the offseason with the young receivers the Green Bay Packers had. And this season, they bottomed out. The offense was, the offense was a joke. Their offense was a tragedy. If it wasn't for the running backs, A.J. Dillon and Aaron Jones, the Green Bay Packers offense would not have moved without those two because it was not moving with Aaron Rodgers slinging the ball all over the place. Christian Watson, the young man, the young receiver they took out of North Dakota State, former teammate of my man Trey Lance, showed a lot of promise uh, this season, in particular the second half of the season. Got off to a slow start the first eight or nine games, but he really began to find himself and really hit the ground running, starting with that Cowboys game um, in late November, early December. Christian Watson had three touchdowns in that game, and I feel like that game was the catalyst, a springboard to what took place the second half of the season for Christian Watson and the uptick in production 
and the comfort. I think he really settled into the offense. And him and him and Rodgers did develop a good rapport with each other in the second half of the season. But Rodgers couldn't get on the same page with everyone else. And like I said, I blame him. That's his fault. He, didn't, he did not want to put the time in during OTAs and all the offseason shit to get on the same page with this young core of receivers. He chose not to do that. He tried to get in rhythm with these guys throughout the regular season, and that's not good. That's not going to happen. That was never going to work. That's what the offseason's for, especially for him as a quarterback. Establish that timing, that rhythm, that precision, the chemistry, the rapport, Get all of that established during the offseason as opposed to trying to work your way through that during the regular season. You saw the results. They weren't good. So the Green Bay Packers, you got a lot to figure out and a lot to assess as you go into this offseason and try to determine what are you going to do? Who's going to be your quarterback next season? Is Aaron Rodgers still going to be on the roster? Or are you going to finally say, Thanks for everything. Thanks for all the memories, number 12. But we need to finally move on and go in a different direction. We look forward to seeing you in Canton, Ohio one day with your gold jacket. But you will no longer be wearing the green and gold of our organization. We've made the decision to go forward with Jordan Love and try to build for the future. It remains to be seen. Are the Green Bay Packers going to do that? As I mentioned at the top of this program, two head coaches got relieved of their duties on Black Monday, the Monday after the regular season comes to a close. Lovey Smith was let go by the Houston Texans, as was Cliff Kingsbury by the Arizona Cardinals. Um, two years in a row now, the Houston Texans have had a black coach, an older black coach. Last season, it was David Culley. This season, it was Lovey Smith. Both of those men only got one year to coach that abortion of the NFL franchise they have in Houston, Texan, Houston, Texas, and they were clipped after one year. That team, that roster is largely devoid of talent. I watch a lot of football. I can name 15 to 20 players on every NFL roster, all 32 of them, at the drop of a hat and a moment's notice. If you were to put me on the spot... If I were held up at gunpoint and someone said, name 20 motherfuckers that play for the Detroit Lions, for the Jacksonville Jaguars, for the Carolina Panthers, well, that, that, that might be a struggle. But you get my point. If somebody were to tell me or ask me to name 10 to 20 players on any NFL roster, I could do it without hesitation. I watch that much football. I'm that much of a nerd. I would struggle to do that for the Houston Texans. I don't know 10 people that play for that team. Off the top of my head right now, I'll go ahead and list the people that I know currently play for the Houston Texans. Laramie Tunzel, outstanding left tackle that they have. Uh, Rex Burkhead, uh, Brandon Cooks, Davis Mills, the starting quarterback. Jeff Driscoll, the backup quarterback. Nico Collins, the wide receiver they took out of Michigan a couple of years ago. Uh, Derek Stingley Jr., the defensive bat they took out of LSU in this past draft, in the 2022 draft, a very good corner with a great career in front of him. Um, Jesus Christ. Now, now, See, now it starts getting murky. Like, who the fuck else plays for the Houston Texans? But you get my point. What was Lovey Smith or David Culley supposed to do with that roster? That team is trash. That team is the drizzling shits. How are you supposed to win with that team? They're clearly tanking for a number one draft pick that they didn't get because they beat the Indianapolis Colts on Sunday, 32-31, two abysmal football teams, but it turned out to be an entertaining football game. But they come from behind. They beat the Colts. By the way, the Colts were 1-7 after firing Frank Reich. And inexplicably, 
hiring ESPN analyst Jeff Saturday, former offensive lineman, for, former starting center for the Indianapolis Colts back when they were good, back during their heyday when they had Peyton Manning at quarterback. They hired him as the coach. No previous head coaching experience on any level. College pro, no. No head coaching experience. They gave him an opportunity. He goes one and seven. And they get outscored in the fourth quarter by 90 to three or some crazy, ridiculous number. They blew a bunch. They blew a 33 point lead to the Minnesota Vikings. How do you blow a 33 point lead? They gave up a 34 point fourth quarter to the Dallas Cowboys and lost that game by 54 to 17 or whatever. But I digress. But two horrible football teams played a very entertaining football game. And the Texans won it. They scored a touchdown and go for two to win the game 32-31. But that took them out of having the first pick in the draft. The first pick in the draft goes to Chicago. But bringing it back to the Houston Texans, I don't know what their plan is. I don't know if there even is a plan. I don't know what direction they're going in. If you're a Houston Texans fan, my condolences. I'll pray for you. But Jesus Christ, that football team, that organization sucks. And... David Culley and Lovey Smith were both, I think, just token Negro hires brought in to appease the Rooney rule and keep black people quiet for a little bit. But we saw, we see how black coaches get treated in the NFL. It's usually a one and done proposition. They're usually brought in to take over a bad football team that has no direction to it, no quarterback to speak of. And then they get fired because they don't immediately work a miracle and turn that team around within two seasons. We've seen a number of black coaches get one year and then get fired. Vance Joseph a couple of years ago, Steve Wilkes with the Arizona Cardinals got one year. He got fired. And now he's currently an interim coach for the Carolina Panthers. He should be promoted. He should be the head coach of the Carolina Panthers going forward. The job he did taking over from Matt Rule after they traded Christian McCaffrey, traded Robbie Anderson, had no quarterback to speak of. They began this season with Baker Mayfield, a quarterback, he was rotten. They brought in P.J. Walker. He was atrocious. They finish up with Sam Darnold, who's always been fucking garbage in the NFL. They have no quarterback in Carolina yet. Somehow, they went down to the wire with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. They could have won that division if they had beaten Tampa two weeks ago. Steve Wilkes should be the head coach of the Carolina Panthers going forward. But we've seen this time and time again too often in the NFL where black coaches are brought in to a position where they are destined to fail. It is clear that the team they're coaching sucks and is not going to get any better anytime soon. They are brought in to coach for inept, incompetent, and impotent organizations that can't walk and chew gum at the same time. And that fits the profile of the Houston Texans. They are fucking trash. Um, going forward, I don't know what they're going to do. If I was them, I would draft C.J. Stroud out of Ohio State. They're still in good position draft-wise. A lot of people criticize why they won the game. Well, you fucked yourself out the number one pick. Yeah, you did, but who cares? Because just because you have the number one pick doesn't guarantee you're going to get the best player in the draft. As I said earlier, Brock Purdy was the last pick in the draft. And look how well he's playing for the 49ers. So the draft is a crapshoot anyway. You can still get a quality quarterback at number two. And Houston also has the 12th pick in the draft. So you pick twice within the first 12 picks. You should be able to get two high-level football players regardless of not having the first pick in the draft. But overall, I didn't like what happened to Lovey Smith the same way I didn't like what happened to David Culley last season. I thought it was fucking garbage. Cliff Kingsbury with the Arizona Cardinals, on the other hand, he deserved to get fired. Cliff Kingsbury never was good. He wasn't even that good in college at Texas Tech. The guy had Patrick Mahomes as his quarterback in college and still couldn't win. And Kingsbury, always, Kingsbury number one, always had a trend 
of his teams being soft and falling apart in the second half of the season. That consistently happened at Texas Tech, and it happened with the Arizona Cardinals. Since 2013, here are the win-loss records, and in particular, the second-half win-loss records for football teams that were coached by Cliff Kingsbury. 2013 Texas Tech, the first seven games, 7-0. The rest of the season, 1-5. 2014 Texas Tech, you begin the season 3-4, finish up 1-4 down the stretch in the last five games. 2015, Texas Tech, first seven games, five and two, rest of the season, two and four. 2016, three and four, start to the season, two and three, finish to the season. 2017, four and three to begin the year, two and four to finish the year. 2018, Texas Tech, five and two to begin the season, 0 and five down the stretch, and the Arizona Cardinals looked at that and said, you know what, that's our guy. We want him to be our head coach. We want him to be our leader. We're so impressed by the fact that this guy started a season 5-2 and two and finished it 0-5 for a 7-5 record. In the Big 12, in college football, we're going to reward him with a head coaching job in the NFL. 5-2 start to the season, 0-5 finish. 2019, his first season with the Arizona Cardinals. 3-3-1 three, three to begin the regular season, 2-7 down the stretch. 2020, 5-2 to begin the season, 3-6 down the stretch. 2021, last season, they begin 7-0, and they finished 4-7, still made the playoffs, but got quickly escorted off the premises by the Los Angeles Rams in an absolutely dreadful performance by Kyler Murray and the entire Arizona Cardinals team in that wildcard playoff game last season. They were fucking terrible in that game. Three and four starts to the 2022 season. One and nine finish. One and nine finish down the stretch. Cliff Kingsbury deserved to be fired. Not only did Kingsbury have a poor win-loss record, but he was brought in specifically to coach and mentor and develop Kyler Murray, the quarterback the Arizona Cardinals took number one overall in 2019. Kingsbury got hired due in large part to Colin Murray because the thought was he can bring in that spread offense, that air raid attack he ran in college at Texas Tech or whatever, bring that to the NFL, and Colin Murray was going to be the perfect quarterback to operate in that system. Turns out he wasn't, and it turns out Colin Murray never got better. If anything, this past season, he regressed. He went backwards. He can't play from the pocket. He can do a lot of things off schedule. He can improvise. He can make the flashy highlights, sports center top 10 play. He can't make the simple play from the pocket. He's too short. He's barely 5 feet 11 inches tall. I'll go on record as saying this right now. If I were an NFL GM, if I was running a pro football team, I would never, under any circumstances, draft any quarterback who's under 6 feet tall. It would be hard for me to draft a quarterback that's 6'1". Preferably, I want that prototypical NFL quarterback, 6'3", 6'4", 6'5", something like that. Tom Brady is 6'4". Peyton Manning was 6'5 back in his day. I want someone like that that can stand in the pocket and deliver the football, go through his progressions, read coverages, figure out what's going on pre-snap, and execute the offense on time and in rhythm. That's the kind of quarterback I would want running my team if I were an NFL GM. Colin Murray does not fit that profile because he's simply not tall enough. He can't even see down the fucking field if he stands in the pocket. Your offensive linemen are somewhere between 6'4", 6'5", 6'6", 6'7". These are big motherfuckers in front of you. You got a little pipsqueak in the backfield that can't see past the – he can't see the forest for the trees. 
He's not big enough. That's just what it is. I would never take a quarterback that small. You look at guys like Kyler Murray and Baker Mayfield, Russell Wilson, shorter, smaller, diminutive quarterbacks, petite NFL quarterbacks. They all, they all struggle playing from the pocket, and they're all at their best outside the pocket. you got to move the pocket, get them on design quarterback runs, bootlegs, whatever, play action, move the pocket in order for them to be successful. You can't do that every play, though. There's going to be plays you got to stand and deliver, and those quarterbacks, we saw that this season with Russell Wilson in Denver. The offense that Russ was playing in this season under, under Nathaniel Hackett, who's already been fired, and justifiably so, that dude had no business being a head coach in the NFL based on his performance and clock management and time management decisions that he was making. But Russell Wilson was being asked to play from the pocket, and you saw the results this season. In Seattle, they let Russ cook. He can do whatever he wanted to do. He can make plays off schedule, all that improvisational shit he likes to do. They let him do it. And he was very successful at it. In Denver, they tried to rein him in and make him play from the pocket, and it was disastrous this season. The Broncos' offense was an absolute joke, as was the Cardinals' offense. Colin Murray's not that guy, man. Never has been, never will be. I don't trust him. He's hurt right now. He tore his ACL, unfortunately. And it sucks for the Cardinals. It's awesome for someone like me as a 49er fan. I revel in the failure of our divisional opponents. The Rams, the Cardinals were both the drizzling shits this season, and I couldn't be any happier. And it wasn't like Arizona was short on talent. They had a lot of guys, a lot of dudes over there. You got DeAndre Hopkins. You made that deal with Carolina to bring in Robbie Anderson, who did not a goddamn thing for the Cardinals. I don't know what happened to him. Robbie Anderson was in witness protection program this season. Can you find him? He was on a milk carton. He fell off the face of the earth. They had J.J. Watt, who is now retired, and J.J. Watt can still play. J.J. Watt has been a fucking menace the past month and a half of the season. He's been playing like a man on fire. He looks like 2014 J.J. Watt the past month of the season. I don't think he's 100% retired. I think if a team makes a phone call to him next season to try to bring him in for a, a stretch run leading up to the playoffs – and try to make one more go at it. If you're J.J. Watt, I think he might answer that call and come back and play for like eight or nine games for whatever team might need him, San Francisco, whatever team may need him to help out with that pass rush going into the playoff push, I think J.J. Watt might come back and play next season because there's still plenty of gas in that tank. Future first ballot NFL Hall of Famer J.J. Watt was fucking awesome this season. But it just goes to show you, the Cardinals had a litany of talent on their roster and still sucked this year. They won like four games, trash, and Kingsbury deserved to get fired. Let's move on to Charm City, Baltimore, Maryland, home of the Inner Harbor, the National Aquarium, and some of the best strip clubs I ever went to. At least they were back in the day. I don't know what the status is right now. I don't live around there anymore, but I digress. Baltimore, Maryland, home of... The Baltimore Ravens and Roquan Smith, their star linebacker who they acquired on Halloween from Chicago Bears, today agreed to a five-year, $100 million contract to stay with Baltimore. $60 million total guarantees, forty-five fully guaranteed. That's a great deal. Highest-paid linebacker in NFL history. He deserves it. He's a great football player. Always, I always love seeing people get their money. However, I mean, the optics of it look pretty fucked up because Lamar Jackson is in line for a new contract. Your star quarterback, the guy that everything kind of sort of revolves around in Baltimore, former league MVP, and he has not been paid yet. He has not received his money, still playing on his rookie contract. 
And he played this season anyway, even with that looming over his head. Me personally, I wouldn't have done it if I was someone close to Lamar. I would advise him to not play at all before the season started. I would have told him, sit this season out. Make these motherfuckers pay you. He didn't. He played all season long until that Denver game where he hurt his knee about a month ago. He has not played since. And the Baltimore offense has been flatter than a plate full of piss. Ever since that Broncos game where Lamar went down, the following week they played Pittsburgh. They won that game, but they only scored 16 points. The week after that, they played against Cleveland. They lost that game. They scored three points in that game. Against Atlanta, they won that game 17-9, but you only scored 17. They lost on Sunday night to Pittsburgh, 16-13. And this past Sunday, they lost again to the AFC North Division champion Cincinnati Bengals, 27-16. However, it should be noted that Baltimore rested a number of starters in that game. Mark Andrews, their best tight end, their best playmaker on offense, period, their best pass catcher. Mark Andrews did not suit up for that game. Even the backup quarterback, the guy who has relieved Lamar Jackson the past month, Tyler Huntley, did not play in that game. They went to their third-string quarterback, Anthony Brown. First and foremost, I salute the Baltimore Ravens. They got three black quarterbacks on their roster. Lamar Jackson, Huntley, Anthony Brown. They got three brothers in their quarterback room. Salute to Baltimore Ravens head coach John Harbaugh for representing for the culture. Three black quarterbacks in the quarterback room. I like that. I like that a whole lot. But the Ravens offense, not productive, not good, just overall trash. Can't score, can't move the ball forward, can't do anything, regardless of who's playing quarterback outside of Lamar Jackson. Even with Tyler Huntley at quarterback, the offense wasn't that great. So now you got to ask the question, what's going to happen going forward with Lamar Jackson? Lamar has a lot of leverage in this situation. Lamar can use that offensive futility against the organization and say, well, when I didn't play, y'all couldn't score more than 17 points. The offense was stuck in the mud. You couldn't function without me. So I think I should be compensated fairly for that. The organization can say, well, you did hurt your knee. And you play a high-risk style of football that depends a lot on your knees and your legs in general and your ability to run around and make plays and use your athleticism. So we're not sure we trust you 100% to pay you given this knee injury that you suffered during the season and your past playoff performances, and your overall style of football, the way you play the game. We don't know if we trust giving you a long-term deal for a lot of money. We're not sure if you're going to be able to hold up. I'm pretty sure that's the conversation going on between Lamar Jackson and the Baltimore Ravens. They don't want to pay him. They're trepidatious about his injury and his ability to stay healthy going forward and the way he plays the game and some some of his playoff failures. At the same time, Lamar is probably saying to them, your offense sucks without me. You can't walk and chew gum at the same time if number eight is not on the field. You have no chance against upper echelon teams in the NFL without me. You're not going to beat Buffalo without me. You're not going to beat Cincinnati without me. You damn sure are not going to beat Kansas City without me. You're not even going to beat the Chargers without me or Jacksonville. Baltimore is not going to win this Sunday against Cincinnati. I'm just saying that right now. I'm going to say that right now. That's a certainty that is going to happen. The Baltimore Ravens are going to lose to the Cincinnati Bengals this Sunday. There's no chance in hell that team can beat the Bengals in Cincinnati without Lamar Jackson. Lamar is like 6-1, I think, all-time against Cincinnati. He plays well against them. He beat them earlier this season on Sunday night. 
But you take Lamar Jackson out the equation, the Baltimore Ravens have zero offense. They have nothing to offer. They bring nothing to the table. They suck. They can't do anything without number eight. They got to get that contract resolved. They got to do something. They could franchise him, which to me would be awful for Lamar Jackson because now that presents the option to play next season and potentially hurt yourself and fuck yourself out of a long-term contract going forward. If I'm Lamar Jackson, I tell Baltimore very seriously, very to the point, very matter-of-fact, I will tell them I'm not playing a down for you ever going forward until you give me my money. If you're not going to pay me, I'm not going to play. Fuck you and your franchise tag. I'm not stepping on that field and playing another down for the Baltimore Ravens until I get compensated to the appropriate amount of money of which I'm seeking. That is what I would say if I was Lamar Jackson. It's a messy situation. They've been asking Coach Harbaugh about it for the past month. And you can tell by the look on his face, his overall body language and demeanor. He's tired of talking about it. He's frustrated about it. Obviously, he wants his number one quarterback on the field. Obviously, he knows Lamar is the best player on the team and everything revolves around Lamar. And if Lamar is not out there, your chances of winning diminish tremendously. He knows that. I know that. People in that locker room probably already know that. Fans know that. Everyone knows that. They're not that good without Lamar Jackson. They have an outstanding defense, especially once they made that trade to bring in Roquan Smith. Defense has been shutting people down. Offense has been no-limit sneaker ugly. They can't do anything. So we shall see what happens going forward with the Baltimore Ravens. Um, I'm rooting for Lamar Jackson to get paid, whether that's in Baltimore or somewhere else, Las Vegas, New York Jets. I mean, you never know. Some team can come in and make a deal, make a trade, because as we've seen all year long, there's some shitty quarterback play throughout the entire NFL. There's been some abysmal production and caliber of play at that position at the most important position in all of sports just horrendous quarterback play throughout the NFL this this season past couple seasons too it's a hard it's a hard position to play number one and in all reality there's maybe somewhere between nine to twelve good quarterbacks in the NFL and if you don't have one it's extraordinarily difficult to win a championship Matter of fact, I'll go as far as to say it's borderline impossible to win a championship if you don't have elite quarterback play. If you don't have someone at that position that can make shit happen and execute in critical moments, especially in the playoffs, on the road, a big game, pivotal situations, legacy-defining moments, if you don't have a quarterback that can rise to that occasion and show and prove and do what he needs to do to help his team win, you're not going to win. Your defense can only do so much the last time a team was led by their defense almost exclusively to win a championship, 2015 Denver Broncos. Peyton Manning at that point in his career was a shell of his former self. Brock Osweiler was terrible. Peyton Manning came back from his injury to do just enough to help the Broncos win a championship that season. But trust and believe, the reason they won, the biggest reason they won that title and won Super Bowl 50 was their defense. Their defense led the way. But it's hard. It's a difficult ask for your defense to go out there and just dominate on a weekly basis when your offense is just sputtering in the mud and doing nothing and bringing zero to the table. It's hard to hold a team to 10 points and still lose the game. It's hard when your defense feels like they can't even give up any points because they know their offense can't score to compensate for it. It's, it's tough. It's tough sledding. you got to play complementary football. That means both, all three phases – Offense, defense, special teams, you got to be able to fire on all three cylinders if you want to win a championship. 
That's just what it is. But most importantly, your quarterback has got to play at a certain level. A certain standard of performance has to take place at the most important position in all of sports. And with the Ravens going into a playoff game with Tyler Huntley, I just don't believe they can do it. I don't believe he can do it. No disrespect to Tyler Huntley. I'm just calling what I see. The other team has Joe Burrow. I believe in the Cincinnati Bengals. They have Joe Burrow, Antti Higgins, and Jamar Chase, and Joe Mixon. But Joe Burrow, make no mistake about it, is the most important piece of that puzzle. He's the quarterback. And in my estimation, he's the third best quarterback in the entire NFL. Only Allen and Mahomes are better than Joe Burrow. Everyone else takes a back seat. Joe Burrow, to me, is the third best quarterback in the NFL. And that's why the Bengals have a legitimate chance to go back to the Super Bowl and this time win it. you got to have a quarterback playing out of his fucking mind this time of the year if you want to win a championship. Especially in the AFC, because all those quarterbacks I just mentioned play in the AFC. Not to mention Justin Herbert with the Chargers. Or Trevor Lawrence, who took off in the second half of the season. He's another one of those dudes in the making. Like, next year or next two years... We could be talking about Trevor Lawrence as the best quarterback in pro football, especially once they upgraded at the coaching position in Jacksonville and got rid of that dumpster fire known as Urban Meyer and brought in Doug Peterson, a professional NFL coach who actually knows what the fuck he's doing. And you've seen the rise and the increase in production and confidence and overall excellence of quarterback play from Trevor Lawrence in the second half of the season. That's why Jacksonville made the playoffs. You saw it with Tennessee. Tennessee has no quarterback. And Tennessee lost seven games in a row and missed the playoffs. You've got to have a quarterback. You've got to have someone at that position playing awesome football. If you don't, good luck and God bless. You better have an all-time generational defense like the 2015 Broncos, the 2012 Seahawks, the 2000 Ravens, the 2002 Buccaneers, the 85 Bears. You better have a defense on that level if your quarterback sucks. So we'll go ahead and end this thing on a high note with some positivity with the best news anyone heard all week. DeMar Hamlin, safety for the Buffalo Bills, who unfortunately went into cardiac arrest last Monday in the game versus the Bengals. They had to do CPR on the field to revive him. He lost his pulse temporarily. His heart, his heart had stopped. They had to revive him. They had to save this man's life on the field in front of thousands of people in the stadium and millions watching at home. He was rushed to the hospital, listed in critical condition. Um, his lungs were in bad shape, to say the least. It was not good. It looked bleak for a long time, for two days at least. It looked grim. It was a grim proposition. Fortunately, and everyone is so grateful for this, myself included, DeMar Hamblin has turned the corner. His progress has been substantial, monumental progress. It's been a beautiful thing to watch. Uh, as of last Friday, he was finally able to breathe on his own. The breathing tube was removed. He was able to communicate, albeit in a written fashion. Last week, he even asked, did we win the game? That was the first thing he communicated, on paper anyway. Did we win the game? This, two days after going into cardiac arrest on the football field, he almost died. He was touch and go. He was close. He technically did die momentarily. And the first thing he's asking was, did we win the game? Football player, man. It's a goddamn football player. And it's awesome that he's turned the corner and his health has gotten better. Taking a turn for the best because, like I said, it looked grim uh, at the onset of this whole thing. But now he's able to talk on his own, verbally communicate. 
He's been active on social media. We've seen photos of him in the hospital bed rooting on the Buffalo Bills in their game this past Sunday versus New England. A report came out that he actually set off alarms in the ICU, in the intensive care unit, in his bed because he was reacting so vigorously and showing so much life, I guess. And that's a good thing, obviously. He's able to respond to things and talk and communicate. And it seems like he's turned the corner and everything's trending in the right direction. He's been airlifted. He's been taken from Cincinnati to Buffalo and now currently in stable condition, still in the hospital, but now he's back in Buffalo, back at home. Great news. Everyone's happy to hear about that. It's awesome. Bills won that game against New England 35-23 on Sunday. Naheem Hines had two kickoff returns for a touchdown in that game, including the opening kickoff. First play of the game, took it back for a house call. Very emotional scene in Buffalo. Everyone obviously with DeMar Hamlin on their mind, their thoughts, their prayers. All across the league, you saw tributes to DeMar Hamlin. Everyone wearing those T-shirts out of respect and deference to DeMar Hamlin, observing the situation, but everyone just so happy that he's turned the corner and now we're hearing positive news about his health condition. And it's absolutely phenomenal. It really is. It's a beautiful thing to hear that. So great for DeMar Hamlin, wishing you a full recovery, all the best, get well soon, do what you got to do, get your mind right, get your body right, and everything else, take care of that first. We're not even going to talk about him trying to come back and play football. The most important thing right now is his overall health and getting back to living a normal and productive life as a human being, as a regular everyday citizen. That's paramount, that's number one. But we're great to hear about the, great fools to hear about the news and how it's gotten better for him. Buffalo might be that team of destiny. You never know. A lot lot of tragedy has happened around the Buffalo Bills this year. The city of Buffalo, the community, and we all know that city, community, and that team and organization are intertwined with each other. The people in Buffalo pretty much are a member of the team. The Bills Mafia, that's a real thing. Those people love the Buffalo Bills. When the blizzard hit, or or the first blizzard, I want to say, hit a couple weeks ago, and they had to move their home game from Buffalo to Detroit. And they went out and played that game in Detroit. They won that game, and they flew back, and their cars were covered in snow, and they couldn't even leave the premises the way they wanted to. You had fans showing up to Buffalo Bills headquarters, helping the players shovel snow out the parking lot to get their cars out. That's the kind of tight-knit community and bond you have in Buffalo between that football team and that community and the fans that's, a, that's, that's tremendous. That's a beautiful thing. But a lot of things have happened around the city of Buffalo. You had that mass shooting that took place at the grocery store in Buffalo that killed about 10 people before the season started. Back-to-back blizzards that devastated the entire area and killed people in the process of that. This is the Mar Hamlin story. Uh, I think one of the radio announcers or someone else in the organization had a stroke over the weekend. So they've gone through a lot in Buffalo, and they've persevered, and they've gotten through it. And their team is a great football team with a realistic opportunity to win a Super Bowl this season. Remains to be seen if it happens. I'm a Niner fan. All the respect I got for the Buffalo Bills, I hope it doesn't happen. So I hope my team wins. But if Buffalo were to win, I wouldn't be that surprised. So with all of that being said, that's my way of wrapping up Week 18 and everything else around the NFL. Leading into the NFL playoffs, kicking off this Saturday As I mentioned previously, the 49ers and the Seahawks in Levi Stadium in Santa Clara, your first playoff game, your opener to NFL Super Wild Card Weekend is going to be fun. Everyone knows. If you know me, you know exactly where I'm going to be this weekend at home watching football. Every game, every minute, every second, every hour, 
watching all of these games, especially that first game, the Niners and the Seahawks. I'll be paying very close attention to that game. So with all that being said, this concludes this episode of the Deion Gordon Podcast. Eternally grateful, always humble, very much appreciative. Thank you so much for listening. And of course, remember to tread lightly like a woodpecker with a headache. Picture me rolling. I'm out.